Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fallis, and my guest today is Elvis Saldías Villarroel. Elvis was born in Bolivia and emigrated to Ohio as a child. He grew up undocumented in Northwest Ohio and today, as a dreamer, is involved in advocacy and organizing around the issue in Columbus. As an advocate, he shares his story across media platforms to increase the public's awareness of DACA. He has been featured in local and national media outlets, including recent trips to Washington, D.C. to lobby Ohio congressional members. As an organizer, he's part of DACA Time, a startup developing web-based application to make the DACA application process easier and more affordable. Bienvenido al estudio, Elvis. Gracias por tenerme, Elena. Gusto estar aquí. Uh, talk to us about growing up in Ohio. What was your childhood like? I moved to Northwest Ohio, a little town called Wasian, which is outside of Toledo. It's a suburban rural town white working class town. And I moved there in 2001. My mother moved my sister and I here then. I was nine years old, had just turned nine. And growing up in Ohio was very different than growing up in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, which were, which is where I'm from. The climate was colder. I didn't speak any English when I got here. I began learning when I was nine years old. And initially that was tough in school because I, I didn't have any friends initially, but Eventually, I did pick up the English, and I found ways to communicate with, with my classmates through sports and other things, so I was okay there. But it was a very different experience growing up here in a small town coming from a, a big city mm. in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up knowing that you and your family were undocumented, when, or when did you find out? So I knew I was undocumented from the moment... Um, that I became undocumented. I didn't, I didn't come to the country illegally. Mm -hmm. I came with a tourist visa mm -hmm. that gave me legal status for about three months, and mm -hmm. it's, it's fairly common for a lot of people actually to come on a visa and then overstay it. Mm -hmm. A lot of current undocumented people came through that process, including dreamers like myself. And at about, you know, after three months, we became undocumented. Initially, as a kid, you don't, feel it as much, but, but I did know, you know, I knew that my mother didn't have access to, to better jobs because she didn't have legal status. And I knew that was part of the reason that we, you know, we were poorer than most, most families. Her being a single mom, she'd always be working. I also knew that she'd have, you know, paranoia or fear driving because mm -hmm. She didn't have a license, but she had to drive. Um, we, you know, in to Columbus, work. you have, mm -hmm. right, to work. You have somewhat of public transportation. In, in that little town, you really have nothing, so you have to get around. So it was very evident to me from an early age that I was undocumented. It, it affected the way I saw the USA and, and, and myself. It was never hidden from me, from my mother. She was always uh, upfront about it. So mm -hmm. I'm not... I, I think I have heard of stories of, of dreamers, you know, finding out when they graduate high school right. or, or when they're in college. Right. I didn't have that growing up at all. I, I, you know, everything that we did 
manifested to me that we were undocumented, whether it was the money issues or whether it was, you know, mom, why can't I go back to Bolivia to, mm. to see my dad? Because my dad's still over there. They, they ended up divorcing, but, you know, just all those things. It was, mm-hmm. it was very clear to me that I was different. Right, right. So growing up uh, as a child, that was part of your story, right? Um, your family was um, undocumented. Uh, but how did that impact your life personally as an undocumented um, young child or maybe after you graduated high school? How did that affect you? So I, I noticed it more. It came to have a bigger role in my life when I turned maybe 15, 16, 17, when I was getting ready to leave high school mm-hmm. because I wanted to work. I came from, I grew up in a, in a mobile home mm-hmm. in, a, in a trailer park there in Wasian and you know, it wasn't the nicest place to grow up in. Sometimes we didn't have AC. Sometimes mm-hmm. the heater, the heater would usually work, but my mom would always wait till the last minute to turn it on to mm-hmm. save money. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew there was a need for me to bring in some income. So by the time I turned 15, 16, you know, I wanted to, to work and I wanted to drive like everybody else. At that point, my, like my friends didn't know I was undocumented. I really didn't feel comfortable sharing it until I turned 18 or 19. Right. They just thought I was a, a poor kid, which I, I was fine with. I wasn't uncomfortable with being poor. I was uncomfortable with being undocumented because I had kind of grown up under this idea that it was like something that I did that was wrong. Mm. And um, let's see. So by the time I turned 16, I want to work. And I, and I know I can't. I can't legally mm-hmm. work. Uh, so I think I did odd jobs, maybe like shovel snow here and there. Or mm-hmm. I remember refereeing soccer games when I could. But that's very irregular. It doesn't provide any sustainable mm-hmm. income. Mm-hmm. So I didn't work for the most part. And I also didn't really drive. I was, uh, I, I, was on my, I was the captain of my soccer team in high school. And I'd usually end up walking to practice, which wasn't right next to the school. Or I'd ride my bike. You know, everybody else drove. I thought it was kind of odd you know, that I'd, I'd have to be doing that, but it was just what it was. Mm-hmm. There was just no way of getting around it. I either had to ride the bus to school or I had to walk or dry, or, or ride my bike or something. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was different. Um, I really, really noticed it when I turned 18. Mm. The day after I graduated high school, so I graduated on a Sunday, and on a Monday, the, f- the first job I had was being a migrant laborer mm-hmm. in southern Michigan. I, we live... We lived close to the border there of uh, Michigan and Ohio. And that was the first job I had. And that required me to show up at 7 in the morning. The day out, you know, it's a, it's a stark contrast going from high school graduation to you're a mm-hmm. migrant laborer. Mm-hmm. Show up at 7 in the morning with, you know, boots, a bandana, hat, gloves, long sleeve in the middle of the summer. Mm-hmm. And then I did that job, and it was mostly, it was mostly tomatoes and, and potatoes and things like that. There's a lot of migrant labor out in that area of uh, Ohio. And I was, you know, just following that because it was the only thing that was available to me. And mm-hmm. I did that all summer, and I realized this is what life is like as an adult, specifically, being undocumented. As a kid, I was somewhat sheltered from it. I didn't have to carry on my own weight yet. Mm-hmm. As an adult, fresh out of high school, it, was, it hit me so hard that that's what my life could be like if I didn't do something, but also because of the circumstances that were in front of me, because of legal reasons. It, you know, I, that's, that's what was available, so mm-hmm. I took it because I am a person that wants to be working towards something. I don't like to, you know, not study or, or not work. I want to be doing something or I want to be doing both. So I did that. And that's the first time I really realized I, I got really, really motivated to, to improve on my situation. I wasn't really an active high school student. I mm-hmm. graduated with a 2.6 GPA in high school. Mm-hmm. Not very impressive, right? 
And I also didn't take the SAT or ACT in high school because I didn't have an ID. And I thought, mm. you know, you need an ID to take this test and mm. I don't have one. And I think there are ways around it. But I also didn't have anybody coaching me. I didn't have anybody, you know, I didn't have the, the guidance counselor didn't really care to take me aside and say, this Invest. is how you can do it. Mm-hmm. And I also didn't let anybody know that I was undocumented. So it was just a thing that I was still working on. So I felt it really heavily then when mm-hmm. I became an adult, you know, this, the, the burden that I had. Right, right. Um, when did your status change to DACA? And for those who don't know what DACA means, is uh, stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And this was um, implemented by um, President Obama. Uh, what opportunities, opportunities did it open up for you? So at the time that DACA came along, this was in the summer of 2012. At that point, I was working at a restaurant as a cook every night and I was going to school. I enrolled, I ended up enrolling at a community college because that's what I could afford in the Toledo area. And I'd go to school in the mornings and I'd work every night. I'd get, I'd work 13 days straight and I'd get every other Sunday off. So it was, it was heavy. So when DACA came out in the summer, one of the first things I did was I put in a plan to, for my next move, which was always to get to a four-year university. Mm-hmm. But for that, I needed more money. I needed more income. And so one of the things that DACA allowed me to do was DACA gives us a work permit. Mm -hmm. And with that work permit, I was able to get a job, a couple of jobs that were better paying. So one of the first things I did the semester right after I got DACA that summer, I left my job as a cook at that restaurant. And I was also not in school that summer. So what I did is I took... um, Actually, I had two jobs. So mm-hmm. I started working at an aluminum foundry, mm-hmm. got up at like 5, went to work at 6, left at 2 p.m. And then at that point, I was still working at the restaurant. So I'd go to work at 3, then I'd work till 11. It's a lot of work in and one repeat. day. And then I'd go to bed at like midnight and then wake mm-hmm. up at 5. And I was working a lot. I did that for about two or three months that summer. And I was putting in over 100 hours a week, and that was exhausting. But mm-hmm. I was doing it with the mindset of I need to raise money for tuition. I'm an able-bodied man. This is tiring, but it's something that I can do. And then shortly after that, I took a better job, which was as a forklift driver Mm -hmm. at an automobile supplier, working a lot, working third shift. It wasn't physically demanding. It was just tiring, and it was somewhat stressful because that industry is somewhat stressful. And then I was able to eventually um, apply to universities around me, and I decided that I wanted to go to the best university that I could in my state because out-of-state tuition was just out of the question. Mm -hmm. As a DACA recipient, you have to pay for, unless you find some sort of other way to pay it. I I, I didn't have another way to pay it. I had had to pay for tuition on my own, Mm out-of-pocket. So I knew I had to raise a certain amount of money, a lot of money, to get me through, you know, semesters here at at a university. So I wanted to go to the best university I could in the state of Ohio for the in-state tuition, and I decided to come to to here, to Columbus, to, to Ohio State University. And that's what it allowed me to do. It allowed me to work so mm-hmm. that I could raise money to pay for tuition. It allowed me to better support myself. And it also gave me that peace of mind of, you know, prior to DACA, I didn't have a, a, an ID. I mean, imagine being an adult and not having a formal ID that says what your name is, that you're, you just don't feel officially recognized mm-hmm. in anything. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of us would deal with before DACA, and I'm sure that a lot of people that don't have any documents today deal with, they don't have any sense of legitimacy. And as a 20-year-old, when I got it, it gave me a sense of legitimacy, and it Mm -hmm. gave me a sense of being recognized by 
by this country. Mm. So I was very thankful for it, and I was very optimistic of what the future would hold. So in short, it did all that for me, which mm-hmm. is a lot, and I'm very thankful for it. Mm-hmm. So I know that um, you've met people like yourself that are in the same sort of status, right, at DACA, mm-hmm. and, um, and many that might have families that, um, you know, with some, some of their, their kids or family members have DACA, some are still waiting for the next um, opportunity to become um, uh, maybe all of a legal legal status in the U.S. So I wanted to ask you, how has this experience, your own experience or your family experience, shaped your understanding of immigrants, or and in particular maybe those that have mixed statuses? What what has it taught you? Or I know that a lot of your own experience um, informs the work that you're doing today, which we'll we'll discuss here in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in in Bolivia, and up until the age of nine, I don't even know that immigrant was in my vocabulary. I Mm -hmm. never thought about what an immigrant was, and I became one at the age of nine, and even then I didn't think about it too much. But now everything I do is about me being an immigrant and my story, because I very much embody the idea of an immigrant. Uh, I come from a different country. I had to learn a new language. I have these struggles. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm trying to improve on my life, so it's very much you know, that immigrant mentality that I carry. And when it comes to mixed status families, you know, in the USA, you realize that that's a very common thing. My family is a, is a mixed status family. You know, at one point we were all undocumented, but my mom eventually met somebody and she married that person. And today she's a citizen. And I also have a little sister who's a, a natural born citizen. And I have a stepfather who's a citizen. But then I have my sister and I who have DACA. Mm-hmm. So we're part of that mixed status family. And I realize that it's, that it's very common and that there are so many kids out there who are otherwise, you know, have the same rights as anybody else here. But their parents are, are in limbo or in peril. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you grow up with that fear much like I did mm-hmm. when I was a kid. So I understand that, too. Um, so overall, that's informed what I do today and it's largely the reason that I do it because I want to improve that situation for anybody that's going to go through it in the future. I want to try and make things a little better in whichever way I can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Last fall, the current administration stopped the ability for new undocumented youth or qualified immigrants to become DACA recipients. Can you talk to us about this and maybe initially even what that... um, did to your own, you know, understanding of what was happening, maybe. So I believe it was last September that the Department of Justice, which is led by Jeff Sessions, announced that they would be rescinding the DACA program and that they gave six months for you to be able to renew that again if you were able to, and that afterwards, if your status expired, and our statuses expire every two years on different mm-hmm. dates, kind of just, you just phase out out of it. And most of us could see that coming, that mm-hmm. have been involved, because for one, President now President Trump campaigned on that. He mm-hmm. said that DACA was unconstitutional, and he said that he wanted to repeal it on day one, which is part of the reason I got involved in a lot of advocacy, because even here at Ohio State, when I was an undergrad, I wasn't involved. And then when, when then-candidate Trump started saying those things and started 
hugely mischaracterizing the immigrants here in the USA. I thought it was my duty to use my my story and my platform to help people understand that this is not the case. Mm-hmm. So I, I started doing that around the time that um, Trump became the Republican national nominee, or the, the nominee for the RNC. Mm-hmm. And um, we could see it coming, most of us that were involved in organizing our advocacy. It was still unfortunate to see it coming mm-hmm. because it is a program that there are, there is so much info to show that we're a net economic benefit to the country and we're otherwise you know, lawful people, regular people just getting by. Like mm-hmm. I was a student here at Ohio State. When that was rescinded, I was working at Nationwide Insurance. That was my job after college. And it was unfortunate to see, but it was also an opportunity to show the public who we were as there was more media attention around it. And thankfully, the program is not done. It has been rescinded, but a couple of judges have said that the way you rescinded it is not correct. So it's Mm -hmm. still being argued and it's going to keep going until it gets to the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. perhaps in the next five to nine months, somewhere in there. So there's still news to come from that. Um, And we're still fighting for it because at the end of the day, if I lose that status, I can't drive here, you know, to this interview and Mm -hmm. I can't legally work Mm -hmm. and I go back to being in the shadows and Mm -hmm. I don't see what good that does to everybody around me and my family and my employer. So we're fighting for that because it's a very real thing that affects us a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell us um, about the work that you're doing uh, currently with DACA Time to support others. So DACA Time is a, as you said earlier, it's it's a startup company that was founded here in Columbus about a year and a half ago. It's a nonprofit. And what we're trying to do is bring a do-it-yourself software, more or less, so that people can do some of these immigration applications by themselves and save a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So in the case of DACA, the DACA application uh, can more or less be done without an attorney mm-hmm. uh, if your case isn't is straightforward, which mm-hmm. most of them are, and you save yourself some money by doing that. So that's the goal that DACA Time is trying to achieve, and then also trying to expand that to other forms so that other applications can be done that way. DACA Time also advocates and does some advocacy um, around the issue, and I'm involved in that as well, and just spreading the word. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a, a fundraiser this Monday, at where is it wild goose creative at 5 30 for anyone who's interested we're going to have some daca recipients there speaking we'll have people to tell you what what's going on with daca time and we also have a photo gallery of some dreamers in columbus that were shot there so that you can see some people uh, Mm -hmm. you know that are from your community and that in essence daca time is um is a startup software company that's trying to bring a, a solution to a problem that a lot of immigrants face, which is a high the high cost that it is to do an applic- immigration form. Right. So you mentioned that um, as a, a startup um, company um, or nonprofit, mm-hmm. um, and the work that you do deals with advocacy. Can you give us a couple of other maybe examples of things that you are working on um, to fight maybe? Um, 
you know, the, the DACA status or the, the work with undocumented immigrants. Uh, what are some of the things that you and, and maybe those uh, like you are doing to bring awareness or change um, for yeah. people? Mm-hmm. I, I think the, one of the more impactful things that I have done is that I have I've gone to Washington, D.C. a handful of times in the last year, year and a half, to talk to members of Congress from Ohio, to talk to the people that represent us here in Columbus and, mm-hmm. and Toledo and Cincinnati and all, all across, and to try and show them the human behind mm-hmm. the stats or the information and you know the, the human behind the idea that they're either for or against. And also to try and bring people together on this issue because I think we have a lot to benefit from solving this issue and then going on to other immigration-related issues. I think this is the easier one to tackle. So I've done that, but I also, part of my plan is to become an attorney and use this, Mm -hmm. my advocacy, but also as an attorney. I think that would be more powerful. And that in a nutshell, and then just continue to to use my story to to help the movement, to help raise awareness about this. In about a couple, in about three or so weeks, I'm going to give a talk at the Columbus Museum of Art at this event called Creative Mornings, mm-hmm. and I'll also talk about a similar topic to this there, and it'll be a, a bigger audience, and that's again with the hope of just giving the story to people that haven't heard of it before and um, just helping them with this narrative and to help them understand so that perhaps you can stir some action in somebody and they they help the the overall movement. Mm -hmm. It certainly makes a difference when people meet face-to-face the people that are most affected by it, right? When you give Mm -hmm. it a face, uh, a person, you can't deny it. Mm -hmm. Yes, they even a lot of people, you know, my previous job at Nationwide that I would tell they were like, I had no idea. I didn't know you guys could, you know, how does it work? You know, like, mm-hmm. do you, they, at some point they even asked me if, you know, if I paid like the same taxes they did. And I was like, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Nationwide's not going to make an exception for me. <laughs> I'm in the same system that you are. Right. Um, and it was just amazing to bring that to them because to them it was such an alien idea. Maybe they thought it was, oh, it's something that's out in California or New York mm-hmm. or Texas. And no, here. it's like, it's right here. Right it's here. in Ohio. There's about... There's thousands of us here in Ohio. There's mm-hmm. there's students at Ohio State mm-hmm. that are undocumented. From what countries? I think the lar- primarily it would be Mexico, mm-hmm. just because the the general undocumented population is mostly, or the largest proportion mm-hmm. of it is Mexican. But I've met people from all over the world that have DACA. Some of my closest friends have DACA. Uh, one of them is um, from Peru. Somebody is from Brazil. Uh, I've met somebody from Costa Rica. I've met somebody that is, whose family is Somali, but he was born in the uh, Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it varies a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, yeah, largely Latinos mm-hmm. have DACA, but, but there's still people from every which place Other in the countries. world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, Elvis, is there anything else you would like to say about you, um, your advocacy efforts or future plans? I would just like to instill in the audience, you know, that you can make a difference. You have the power to vote. I obviously don't have that, mm-hmm. and I hope to have it one day and, and use it. But we really can make a change by voting, and I feel like it's 
we have to just, as a citizen of Ohio, of the USA, it's the best way to move this issue forward. And I say this especially as the midterms are coming Mm -hmm. because of them, but also because I know that the people who have the same ideas as I do, we outnumber those who don't. We just sometimes don't vote as often. We don't vote in the midterms as much, and we don't vote in the primary elections, and those are very important because those are, you you have a lot, every two years, the House of Representatives is up. Mm -hmm. It it could be a whole new one. And, for example, in Ohio, Ohio's a fairly 50-50 state, yet our representation at the state level skews about 66% towards our Republican side. They have a supermajority in the in the state house and they can do they can pass the laws they want. Mm-hmm. And some of that, yes, is gerrymandering, but some of that is also because we don't turn out to vote. And I, and I wish we did because it seems like such a simple thing to me, but mm-hmm. then again, I've always known that I can't vote and I will never take it for granted once I can vote, but I realize that people have different circumstances. So I would just like to instill that in people to to get out and vote. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah, you you can throw some shade, but also go out and vote. It's very important. And in terms of me and my future, I just hope to keep advancing this issue. And one day, you know, whether hopefully you become an attorney, I want to use it to help shape some solution to this, whether it's some law or something else that gets done, because... I really will make it my mission to contribute to this for so long as it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, Elvis, thank you for um, this interview. Gracias por tu visita y por esta conversación. Um, mucha suerte en todo el, el futuro, en las escuelas de leyes eh, que estás viendo. Y, um, y esperamos ¿no? ver a, a, al, al abogado <laughs> Saldías Villarroel en el futuro. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.